Hello and welcome to A Very Full Plate, the podcast where we're all about real food talk with real parents. Your hosts for today are Amy, a natural foods chef and mom of two, and Emily, a professional home organizer and mom of three. Take it away, ladies. Hi, friends. Thanks for joining us. I'm your co-host, Amy. I turn parents into kitchen ninjas to help them feed their families healthy food more often. I'm all about balance, real life, and having fun in the kitchen. You can find me at cookingwithafullplate.com and my Facebook page of the same name. Hey, guys. This is Emily. I'm a professional organizer who helps my clients simplify their lives so that they can experience harmony in their homes again. You can follow me on Facebook or Instagram or visit hallharmonyhomes.com. Come along with us while we celebrate our small victories and laugh at our challenges. And thank you so much for listening. All right, everyone. Welcome to the A Very Full Plate podcast. I am so excited to be here today with Natalia Stasenko. Natalia is a registered dietitian and a child nutritionist. She's someone that I've been following for quite some time. I've shared a lot on my Facebook page, and I've just been really inspired as both a parent and a food professional by her work and her message. And so I'm beyond honored to have her here on the podcast today. We are really going to hone in on the theme of turning picky eating around. And Natalia, I can't wait to hear from you. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, hi. And uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me here. I'm beyond thrilled. You know, talking about picky eating, talking about feeding and just talking to parents is one of my most favorite things to do. So thank you for this opportunity, you know, to climb on my soapbox and just uh, have this time with you and your audience. Amazing. So, Yeah, can you tell us about your family (laughs) and what it is that you do and how you got into doing it? That's a lot. Sure. Yes. So um, I'm a registered dietitian, and I um, before I became a registered dietitian, I was a nutritionist, which is a slightly different certification. And you know, when my first child was born. realized that I'm thinking more and more feeding children were interesting me, interesting me, me much more than anything else when it comes to nutrition. And so when I embarked on this career of registered dietitian, I decided to specialize in pediatrics, in child nutrition, and I never looked back. So um, at the moment, I have three girls, they're 12, 9, and 3 years of age, and we live in London. Um, I'm from Russia originally, my husband is from Spain, and we just travel around the world pretty much, hoping around a little bit. We've lived uh, in the U.S., where I actually became registered dietitian. We lived in Canada. We go to Spain a lot, and right now we're in London. So that's our little family history. <laughs> that's amazing, one. And also, I am so inspired by the fact that you are still thinking about all this healthy eating stuff while living a life that most of us would probably find overwhelming on top of having three kids. That's so cool. (laughs) Oh yeah, this is, it's actually quite convenient because I think about food all the time and I work with food and with feeding all the time and I feed my family every day. So it's nice because my actually, my day-to-day life as a parent and my work as a professional, they're pretty much the same thing. Yeah, that's amazing. We talk a lot here and I talk a lot on my page about just like 
you know, it turns out your family needs to eat every day. So even if you are not someone who has made a career in food and wants to think about food all the time, it has this pesky habit of needing to be thought about, especially once you have kids and cereal is no longer an acceptable dinner sometimes. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So I think one of the biggest questions I want to make sure that we cover today, so we'll just do it off the bat to set the scene, is um, I have so many parents who come to my page and they say, oh, you know, I have a kid who's so picky and they don't like to eat vegetables and I'm not sure what to feed them. So my first question for you is, how do you define picky eating? Like, how do we as parents know if our kid is truly a picky eater or just being a kid? Right. Well, that's a big question. And I'll start, I'll try to break it into a few couple different areas. Well, first of all, picky eating or eating problems, as we call them, is a spectrum of things. It can, uh, at the milder, lower side of the spectrum, we have the developmentally appropriate pickiness that starts when kids turn one, one and a half, maybe two years of age, and they start being a little bit more apprehensive about new foods. And they also need fewer calories because their growth slows down. So that creates this perfect storm, you know, alongside with the newly found independence, striving for independence. So it all creates this cocktail of things where feeding may become a struggle. So that's the typically, develop, typically appro- sorry, developmentally appropriate picky eating that most kids go through this phase. So I want to pause you there and make sure I'm understanding that it is normal. You tell me if I'm wrong. It is normal for a one to two year old to become a little bit more picky for a variety of reasons, including that they don't need as many calories anymore. And what might show up to us parents is like, this is a problem. They're developing bad habits, which is a thought that I've had (laughs) is really just a natural development process. We call it it's perceived feeding issue. So there are two types of feeding issues. So I'll just back off a little bit. Perceived feeding issue and the real feeding issue. So the perceived feeding issue typically arises when parents misunderstand a developmentally appropriate milestone or this specific, specific phase they child is going. It's like, you know, a 10-month-old starts refusing a spoon because they really want to self-feed and parents think that they don't want to eat anymore and they cannot feed them with a spoon. That's another example. This is a perceived feeding issue. You see, it's very easy when you know milestones that your child is going through, you kind of anticipate all of that. So the children who are on this milder sector of the spectrum, they are typically those who have perceived feeding issues, those that go through these very developmentally appropriate phases. And then there are children who have underlying issues. These kids who's eating, um, these are the kids whose eating is more um, difficult because they may have specific sensory needs or oral motor problems or higher levels of generalized anxiety or mealtime anxiety. And they have all these gastrointestinal problems like food allergy, reflux, all of that. So all of that is kind of underneath those uh, feeding problems and it fuels them, all these issues. They fuel those feeding problems and they will not get better if we just sit there and wait. So they need more support in those specific areas. So these kids are on the other side of the spectrum. So these are, as we call them, extreme feelings where the kids actually may need help of a team of professionals. 
So peak eating per se doesn't have a formal definition. <laughs> so it's just, it's a spectrum of feeding problems. It can vary from very normal, developmentally appropriate, that will go away if we just react to them appropriately, to those issues that need a lot of work and a lot of digging and help of a team of professionals. I love this because so much of what you're saying, I think, applies to parenting on a broader basis, which is like (laughs) real versus perceived issues and finding our way as parents to navigate and find out like, well, which one is this and how do I handle it accordingly? So today, I have a feeling that we're going to focus mostly on perceived eating issues um, because it sounds like real perceived, real eating issues is something a little bit larger, but just so that we don't gloss over it in case someone listening is feeling like, oh, I think my child falls in that latter category on the far end of the spectrum. What should a parent do if they are feeling like there are real feeding issues that they need to address with their child? Well, there are a few options. If um, the parent lives in the U.S. and the child is younger than two years of age, they can ask their doctor for a referral to an early intervention program. It's absolutely free. It's nationwide. And it has a lot of specialists who are trained to address these kind of issues. If the child is outside the U.S. and they're older than two, it's definitely important to talk to the doctor and ask for a referral to a dietitian who specializes in feeding problems because dietitians like myself, they know know who else they can ask for help. Or to occupational therapists if there is a problem with um, sensory hypersensitivity or to speech-language pathologists if there is um, a suspicion that there may be some kind of swallowing or chewing issues. So there's a number of specialist therapists. Of course, if there are generalized anxiety issues, very, very important that parents, first of all, work with a therapist to know how to address them with their child, even when the child is too small to work with a therapist one-on-one. So there are a number of specialists, gastrointestinal um, GI doctors, mm. who um, allergists, you know, um, just to make sure to troubleshoot that there are no underlying GI issues interfering with the child's eating. Amazing. I super appreciate you sharing that perspective. And like I said, we are not going to go into the kind of like deep, real feeding issues, but I do want to encourage everyone, if this is something that you think you're dealing with your, with your child and you want to learn more from Natalia, Feeding Bites is the spot to do that. And I'm going to include that link in the show notes so that you can connect with her because what I want to really focus on today is like, what are some really actionable things that, that we as parents can do to turn picky eating around, especially when it's in that, like maybe in between space of this might be developmentally appropriate, but I also want to make sure I'm doing everything as a parent to lay a good, healthy eating foundation for my kids now and for the rest of their lives. Exactly. Absolutely. Because you know what? Even though those behaviors that may be driving us crazy as parents in kids are very developmentally appropriate, we need to address them correctly. Because our first instinct is, oh my God, my child is not eating vegetables. The panic button goes, wee, wee, wee. And we start using all these counterproductive strategies to get them to eat more, to eat vegetables, to eat less of something, to try something. So And all these strategies that we are using, actually, they may exacerbate those very developmentally appropriate feeding issues 
into severe, severe difficulties down the road, a few years down the road, because some kids are just very, very sensitive to pressure. Some kids are less sensitive to pressure. And those kids who are very sensitive to pressure, they will react to it in a negative way and the feeding and eating will get worse immediately. So that's why, although they're very appropriate, those eating behaviors in our children, we need to understand what is going on and what we have to do as parents. This is so interesting because my next question that I had laid out for you was, is it really possible to turn picky eating around? And I'm going to revise that question because what what it sounds like to me that you're saying is not that there's an act as parents in most cases that we need to turn it around. It's that we need to be consistent in the foundation that we lay regardless of what our children's reaction looks like so that in the long run, in the end, they come out being well-fed, balanced eaters. Is that true? It's a journey. Yes, you're right. It's a journey. It's not one act show. It's a journey. (laughs) Nothing will happen in one day. Little may happen in one week or um, month even. I always tell tell the parents that changing your child's eating habits and changing your feeding strategies, it's not like steering a motorboat. Imagine a huge cruise ship and you're trying to like make it move in the opposite direction. It's not going to happen like that. Yeah. You will need to spend, you will need to be persistent, careful, and educated in how you approach your feeding strategies so that over time, after you've laid down this foundation, your child just naturally gravitates to a healthier diet and he learns to eat what the rest of the family is eating. So this is as simple as that. <laughs> as simple as turning a cruise ship. I love it. <laughs> but I, I really think that that analogy is so apt and so important. It's something I talk a lot about when it just comes to feeding your family well, but it is so important for kids, which is like thinking in the long term, not in the short term. Like, did little Joey eat broccoli at this meal, A plus or F, but rather like, Am I making sure that I'm making it so that in the long run, he will eat and enjoy vegetables and have the right attitude toward food? And it's like a really long game to know. Yeah, at at the end, it's all about having a healthy relationship with food. So that actually helps us to become curious about food and uh, want to eat more variety and look for balance and try to, you know, eat a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's more about the long-term goal, as I said, much more. And actually focusing on this, on micromanaging what the child eats at any given moment makes parents apply more pressure. And pressure (laughs) creates stress and it does make eating better. So I I need to pause there and pull out that takeaway, which is (laughs) micromanaging eating in the moment doesn't help our kids eat better in the long run. Yes, it takes away this intrinsic motivation to eat because it's not, they're not guided by their, by their hunger. They're not guided by their own curiosity about food, about the desire to discover and learn new things. They're guided by external factors, like mm-hmm. parents wanting them to do something, you know. <laughs> That's not a good well, reason to eat. No, it's not a good reason to eat. And so I really want to make sure that we dive into some super practical strategies for how parents can do that. So what does dinner look like in your house to foster 
that sort of intrinsic motivation in your children to eat better? Absolutely. So basically, in order to... um, in order for our kids to develop a healthy relationship with food, they need to see how it's happening, how people are eating. So imagine a toddler learning to walk, right? We wouldn't just kind of stand them, let them stand and just, you know, expect them to walk immediately. We give them lots of opportunities to practice, right? And see other people walking. So mealtimes are exactly that. Family mealtimes is just this perfect um, environment for them to learn. So um, how we do it in our family, we, um, I cook most of the time. So I have to say I, I cannot say we, <laughs> that would not be completely true. But okay, so I prepare uh, a meal. It's typically um, some kind of carbohydrate, starch, maybe a couple of vegetable options, maybe some fruit, salad, some protein. Sometimes we use animal protein like meat, fish. Sometimes it's just beans or sometimes there's even no protein at all. Eggs. So, okay, we have to talk about protein a little bit later, but I just okay, made it. Yes, I'm, I'm writing it okay. <laughs> okay, so, and then uh, I put all these options in the middle of the table. I do not use any special serving platters or, you know, my grandmom's soup bowls or anything like that. I put pots and pans. Or another thing I use are those um, containers that you can put away in the fridge with lids. So I just put the food in those containers and put everything in the middle of the table. And everybody serves themselves what they want to eat. My kids have been serving themselves since they were one and a half, two years of age. So I literally just move the bowl closer to them and they just scoop. First, they make lots of mistakes and put a lot on their plate. But in a couple of weeks, they learn and they they don't care about overfilling their plates anymore. And so we eat the meal. And sometimes my kids eat a little bit of everything. Sometimes they just eat one thing. And um, um, when they were younger, like my younger one is almost four now, so she doesn't skip dinner anymore, but she used to. All my kids, when they were at about two, two and a half, years of age, they were skipping dinners regularly. And that's another perceived feeding issue that I often see working with families. So yes, so now they, most of the time they eat dinners, so they don't skip them. And uh, yeah, so we all eat. Nobody looks at other people's plates. Nobody talks about food at all, except, you know, apart from um, socially acceptable way of talking about food, like when your husband's colleague comes to join you for dinner and you just kind of talk about food, but you don't ask him to take a bite of something or try this <laughs> or make you take a sip of yes. that. So we treat kids with respect and uh, we expect them to behave at mealtimes. That's the expectation we have. They join the family mealtime, they are to behave like a family member. So there is no special treatment. Nobody gets up to cook something different for them. The food is on the table. They all eat. A very important detail is that I plan my meals in a way that each of my kids, and I have three, has something of the food they typically eat, the accepted food, we call them. We call these foods accepted foods on the table. The easiest option sometimes is either starch, or protein. Vegetables sometimes, but mostly it's starch or protein. So there's always something on the table they can eat, even if the rest of the options are less liked or disliked or new. 
Yeah, there are so many amazing tidbits in here that I know. I'm just, I just know that there are a lot of our listeners and even frankly for me who this feels like such a long way from where they are to think about sitting down at a table and just not worrying and being like, I have done the pre-work to make sure everyone has something they're going to eat and what exactly they eat and whether they eat at all is not actually up to me. Exactly. So we give the responsibility to choose what or whether to eat back to our children. It actually, my work is based largely on Ellen Satter's division of responsibility. And of course, you, if you've been curious or interested in feeding children, I'm sure you have come across this model where parents are responsible uh, for, for what when and where of feeding and children are responsible for how much or whether to eat. So we set the meals, we chose the menu, we included a couple of options that we know that our kids will eat if they're hungry, and then we let them decide whether they want to eat, whether they're hungry or not, and uh, how much they choose to eat. I must say that you actually introduced me to DOR. So I have you to thank for that because it has been so eye-opening. Something I have just said to friends as we discuss feeding kids was like, I feel like it's my responsibility as a parent to offer healthy options. And I feel like it's my kid's responsibility to decide whether or not they're going to eat them. And what I have loved about learning from you and getting this model of DOR in my head is the very specifics of the what, when, where and then saying like it is up to my kid to say how much and you're right I love that analogy of like if a business colleague were at dinner you would never be like hey do you want a bite of broccoli how about a bite of broccoli before you leave the table how about that broccoli (laughs) I know imagine the pressure I mean it's just such a simple analogy but I think in parenting we you know we have instincts that sometimes work against our intentions of giving the kids this opportunity to explore the food. Our instinct is um, make sure that our kids are fed, right? So they're safe, they're warm. And giving them this freedom requires a huge leap of faith and a lot of confidence and uh, requires a lot of patience. You need to trust your child to make it, to be able to make those choices. And the scary bit is that once you start applying the division of responsibility, I just want to say it specifically for listeners who want to just give it a try, it's very likely that your child's eating will get worse for some time because they will want A, to test those limits just to make sure that you're not joking, that they can eat all the mashed potatoes they want, right? How crazy is that without even taking a bite of broccoli? So they will want to taste the, to t- uh, test the limits. And the second thing, they will probably want to kind of find their own space. To um, find this space and um, this kind of situation where they feel comfortable exploring and being curious. Because if they've been always told what to do and what to eat, imagine that. Or they've been always eating with a screen in front of them. They're so dissociated from the food, from their feelings, from the taste, from the texture, from everything. So they almost need to really learn to eat and to learn to like those foods that they've probably been eating before to get a bite of brownie. You know, now they need to really taste those foods. And that is a process and it may take some time. 
So that's a scary yeah. bit. So it does get worse before it gets better. So I have heard a lot of what you're saying and I've embraced, I would say 60% of it in our house, but I really needed this kick in the butt to really fully empower my kids. Um, so thank you for this because we've gotten to the point where we're happy if people eat two out of three things on the plate. And I try to strategize so that my, my uh, oldest will at least eat one thing. Um, there are many nights where I act, I eat, I, I make like meatballs and, and pasta. She doesn't like either of those. And I'm like, just eat the vegetable. I don't even care. Um, but I still find that we have this habit where it's like, we got to have one bite of vegetable. Like, and we definitely put pressure on them. Like you can't get down unless you have some kind of bite of vegetable. Like we're, we're, you know, maybe 60% there with this process of you can feed yourself and you can choose how much, but then we're like, but you can't waste it or you can't um, mm. not have any vegetable if you do want to move on to dessert. Or I run into my oldest being like, I don't want any of this. Can I just make myself something else? And I just, I'd be curious about your thoughts, but I also feel like this, thank you because this is hugely empowering for me to say, no, I do need to let go of the reins and just trust their instincts. And, um, also I just yesterday spoke to my best friend about how she said her two-year-old stopped eating dinner. And she's like, I don't know. And I said, I always say my kids eat really well when they eat two meals a day. (laughs) Um, this has been really great. And, um, any feedback you have on those concerns and also just a big thank you because this is really empowering for me oh thank you thank you i really appreciate that and there's definitely definitely a couple of things i can say i can say but what you just covered well first of all the one bite rule right i always tell to parents okay listen if one bite rule worked universally with every child out there piggy eating wouldn't be an issue because you ask them to take one bite they take one bite and everybody moves on and the thing is that one bite rule works with small number of children and it doesn't work with many other children who actually may become very apprehensive and very tense and the anxiety will just you know hitting through the roof it's really it's not a rule to use with a number of children and uh, all of the parents I work with they failed (laughs) to apply this rule in their household or if they do apply it comes to this ridiculous um uh, situations when child asks, okay, and how much, um, how many bites of broccoli I have to take in order to get this piece of cake? So you're like thinking, oh my goodness, so my child is now gonna eat broccoli in order to earn a piece of cake. So the piece of cake, besides being the sugary, super special treat, now is elevated even higher. Its status is inflated even more because just from a dessert, it turned into an award, an actual award for eating these disgusting vegetables that surely cannot taste good because otherwise why would somebody award eating them with like something amazing like a cake? You see, so it changes their thinking about food absolutely, completely. So that's why one bite rule is not something that I encourage using and I know that it doesn't work with many, many families. And regarding vegetables in general is that um, vegetables... Because of their flavor profile and because of their unique texture, first of all, they are very challenging food because of how they feel in the mouth and how much work they require chewing. Second of all, they supply very few calories and they taste slightly bitter. So vegetables is not the kind of food that 
small children gravitate to naturally. It's more of a acquired taste. Um, children gravitate more naturally to foods that are more caloric dense, calorically dense, and they taste more pal- in a more palatable, like sweet, sweet vegetables or sweet fruit or in milk. That's that's very natural. This is what we are all born with. But um, the more vegetables they see in the environment, the more vegetables they see on the dining table, the more vegetables they're exposed to through grocery shopping, cooking, cleaning, washing, peeling, all of that. So all these exposures contribute to their familiarity and familiarity eventually leads to testing and that eventually leads to eating. So it's a very long process. It may take years. Yeah, I, sorry, go ahead. I'm just like fascinated by this vegetable thing because it's probably the number one question that I get from parents who are frustrated feeding their kids. But nutritionally, vegetables are not the priority for kids. We just need to understand. And kids can thrive on a vegetable-free diet. Absolutely. I can tell that to you as a dietitian. So I'm doing DOR from the start. Walk me through this. I'm like feeding a a one-and-a-half-year-old, and she never wants a vegetable. She can still be a healthy, thriving little person that's going to turn into a big person without ever eating a vegetable. Absolutely. If vegetables is the only food group she omits, she still eats fruit, she eats some protein-rich foods, she eats um, starches, obviously. That's absolutely fine. Fruit and vegetables have a lot of overlapping nutrients anyway, so it's totally fine. Oh my God. Hallelujah. (laughs) (laughs) I was just going to say, listeners, you're going to need to listen because it's totally fine if you're... But it does mean that you should just... Okay, okay. That's an important caveat. It does mean that you have to stop serving those vegetables. That just okay, my child is not eating vegetables. He doesn't need to. You stop serving vegetables now. No, no, no. Those vegetables need to be at snack, on their snack platters. Those vegetables need to be at dinner table, breakfast, lunch. Every eating opportunity or almost every eating opportunity needs to include vegetables because they're part of a balanced diet. And our job as parents is to show our kids every day what a balanced diet is. Once we stop showing them, vegetables uh, go out of the window forever. We still need to serve them. They still need to eat them. They still need to be a part of the environment because this is where they are. This is where they belong. Well, and I feel like this is a real case for something that I am very passionate about, which is your kids see the way that you're eating. And so I think it's so easy to fall in the trap as a parent of saying like, I'm going to worry about what I feed my kids and forget entirely that you are a human being who needs to eat a healthy, balanced diet as well. And so if you're feeding your kids sandwiches with cherry tomatoes for lunch and you're eating a bag of chips because you just don't have time, it sounds to me like that's actually more detrimental than your kid not eating the vegetables on their plate. Exactly. And it's actually one of the reasons why parents don't eat together because they kind of feel if they start focusing on the accepted uh, foods for their children, they're not interested in this kind of food. And parents feel like, oh, I'll just eat something later on. I don't want to eat what my child is eating. But what I do actually, what I encourage parents to do is always have something on the table that makes you happy. Mm. The cook 
you have to have something that makes you happy. Like I love vegetables. I always include all kinds of crazy vegetables on the table. And because my kids always see them and always see them, me eating them and all salads and everything. So they learn to eat them. They have no option. Like they see them every day there. So, and if it's not vegetable for you, if it's maybe something exciting sauce or like some interesting deli meat or some spices, make sure that you have it all on the table. Make those meals exciting and satisfying for you as a parent. You will, otherwise, you will stop doing that. You will yeah. not commit it for years and years and years and years and years. You'll try it for a couple of weeks and say, ah, oh, I just don't want to eat with my kids. It's always boring stuff. And, and that's it. So make yeah. sure make yourself happy. I know that there's someone out there listening who's thinking like, wow, this sounds like a lot of cooking. <laughs> and honestly, when I started learning from you, I thought like, wow, she's talking about a number of different things on the table. Um, and you just did this really cool series recently that I would encourage people to go check out. Was it in your group or on your Facebook page where you're on Facebook page? I share okay. some to the group, but it's mostly on the page. Okay. So I'm going to add a link to that in the show notes, but there was like at least 12 days of showing what your family was actually eating. And I'd love to just pause for a moment and have you tell folks, how do you balance making sure that there's like a bunch of options on the table and one thing each kid will eat and something you love and all of that with your sanity and just having time <laughs> to make it happen? Oh, absolutely. So I've been doing that for years and I know my kids really well and I'm a professional. So for me, it's very easy. If you're just starting out, I suggest that you make a list of accepted foods for each child. Divide them into food groups. If you want to be fancy, you don't have to. It's not um, necessary. Just make a list. Now, stock those safe foods. It may be some kind of vegetables that you may pre-cut and pre-wash and throw them in a fridge. It may be some frozen um, vegetables or it may be just an additional starch like pasta that you can cook and use for three days. It may be some fruit and cheese that you can cut and put on a platter and just keep it in the fridge. It doesn't have to be a like, balanced meal for each child. It just has to be one or two foods, right? Yeah. So then when you plan your main dish, think about, look at the list of those safe foods and just kind of see, does each of my child find something to eat here? Can I, can I deconstruct that main dish so there's more ingredients apart, like potato bar, salad bar, quesadillas, whatever else that can be deconstructed and then they can combine in their own way on the plates works great because there sure will be one or two options they can eat. So be guided by these safe lists, the list of accepted foods and make sure there's one or two things. It's no big deal to serve more options um, as side dishes. It's okay as far as it doesn't take extra work and literally just pulling these little things from the fridge and then you cover the plate and put it back in the fridge so it doesn't have to be anything fancy. As you do it for weeks and months, it will be just a very simple system. You don't need to think about it. And your kids will start eating more variety so you won't have to even like think about it too much because you will already know this you're is doing this is something that I really learned from watching your meals, which is like, oh, she didn't plan like, I don't know, this is a bad example, but it came to mind, like fried chicken night. And then you have to have like mashed potatoes and gravy and like 
collard greens and whatever, like this whole coordinated meal. Instead, it was like, okay, tonight I made chicken curry, but I also had some pasta left over in the fridge and we had this salad. And so it's sort of like an amalgamation of different things that you're bringing together in different ways instead of trying to like be a short order cook, which I know a lot of parents end up being being like, okay, I'll make eggs for so-and-so like right now because I know they won't eat anything else. It's just, it's a really different approach. And I think that it's um, maybe easier for people to wrap their heads around. Yeah. So if we have any leftovers, actually a lot of family meals that I prepare um, planned around leftovers. I always pull out whatever leftovers we have in the fridge. And as I said, it can be a platter of vegetables or some chicken or something leftover from last night. I just put it in the table because I know that somebody will eat it. Yeah. So I don't actually spend more than 20, 30 minutes cooking ever, ever. And some of it. our meals are like sandwich bars, which is like sliced bread, smashed avocado and some chicken deli, whatever. And people just eat it, combining in whatever way they want. I find that's an easier and more sanity saving way to feed small kids rather than, as you said, preparing different meals. But I understand why parents are doing that. They're worried that their kids, A, won't eat in a balanced way, B, won't get any protein that we need to talk about. Yes. And C, will not get any vegetables. So they just try to tailor those little mini meals for their kids so that they get the nutrients. But kids, they eat in a balanced way. Um, they acquire this balance over a week or a couple of weeks, not over a meal or even a day. So you really need to look at what they're eating in a whole week. I think that's the perfect segue into this protein conversation that I don't want to miss because um, when I first started studying nutrition, I went to a natural food chef program and, and even prior to that, I had been a vegetarian and it was like in the time of thinking that you needed to like eat complete proteins all at one time. So you needed to say combine beans and rice to make sure that you had all of the elements of protein. And my understanding is that over time that feeling for getting complete proteins has changed into like on the totality, if you eat a balanced diet, you will get everything that you need. And it sounds like that's true for kids. But how do we as parents stop worrying about really specific things like protein, which is a huge question I get all the time. Absolutely. Oh, protein is so huge. I actually wrote a blog post about protein because I was just tired of listening about all, to all this worry and anxiety online. So the thing is that protein is not a nutrient of concern for most, I mean, for 99% of kids in industrialized nations like US, UK, and Europe, and Australia, obviously Canada. So it's not a nutrient of concern. It's very, very easy to achieve the nutritional needs when it comes to protein. A toddler needs about 11 grams of protein. A glass of milk is 8 grams of protein. So that's it. You have it here. Pasta has lots of protein, five, six grams of protein per cup of pasta, depending on the brand. Um, bread has two, three grams of protein in each slice. So protein needs actually very often exceeded, whether by kids or adults in uh, Western, Western world. So it's not an issue. I mean, we know that there's a lot of protein shakes, protein this, protein that. But I don't know. I think it's a combination of just the food industry trying to push all these supplements and then these weight loss programs and everything just chimes in. 
So kids don't need as much protein. That's what I want parents to understand, that if, if they drink a glass of milk, eat some yogurt, bread, pasta, rice in a day, they will get their protein. The only two populations where protein may be concerned are uh, extreme vegan um, families where okay. they don't eat any animal produce and also very, very picky toddlers who drink plant milks that are very low in protein. So these are two populations that I try to be more careful with when I talk about protein. So protein is not a concern. There are other nutrients that are more tricky for picky eaters to eat, to get, but protein is not one of them. Thank you for clearing that up. And I have shared that blog post, but I'm going to add that in the show notes as well, because I just think there's so much value in letting go of this thing that I think you're right. It's like a societal, it's what we're focused on now. And in the past, there's been the fat free craze and people were making sure they weren't getting too much fat. And it's like this ever changing trend, but we as parents shouldn't be guided as trends in how we feed our kids, right? We want to feed them well based on real research and the reality of the world we live in. Are there nutrients that are of concern, like things we should legitimately be concerned about? Yeah, so iron is definitely one of those foods that um, may be of concern. It's the biggest nutrient deficiency in the U.S. So I would definitely look into the iron consumption and specifically into how much dairy they drink, um, milk, it's sorry, dairy they eat and milk they drink because the calcium from dairy interferes with iron consumption. And that's one of the few situations where I would want parents to kind of combine foods in a certain way, like serve iron-rich foods, with vitamin C-rich foods and not very close to calcium-rich foods, as an example. Um, then um, omega-3 fatty acids may be of concern if the kids don't eat fish. So I always recommend parents to look into supplements while serving fish regularly in different ways, waiting for their child to kind of, you know, click in and get this recipe that they like and start eating fish. So supplements may be beneficial. Vitamin D, easier supplemented than uh, then um, found in food, fiber in some kids, especially those who are prone to constipation, we look into fiber intake, specifically from whole grains. So all these little things that depend on each individual situation. So we try to kind of um, adjust the diet and supplements to make sure that all these nutritional, potential nutrition gaps are closed. Very cool stuff. I um, This is so consistent with what, I have always learned, which is like as a society, we are for some reason so focused on macronutrients, things like proteins and fat and carbohydrates. And we've like lost sight of these micronutrients, which are your vitamins and your minerals and your antioxidants. And when it comes down to it, the micronutrients, the little things that make up the food are actually the biggest things we're lacking. Because when you just eat a burger or you eat French fries or you fuel yourselves with things that are like have lots of calories and lots of these macronutrients, but are lacking those like little tiny building blocks that are the things yeah. we actually need to feed our bodies. That's where the biggest deficiencies actually happen. Yeah, so there's, yes, definitely. So there's definitely ways to tweak the diet. I'm saying it's not going to be an overhaul, dietary overhaul. Right. And no right. child will just embrace so many different changes, but it's more about tweaking and supplementing in a careful way. So more that... But there's even the peakiest eaters are likely to meet their micronutrients, as you said, their macronutrient needs. So there's definitely not a lot of concern about that. 
Okay, great. One last thing we can be concerned about. Um, you t- mentioned something earlier that I want to make sure we don't skip over because this is like a huge theme in my life. I have a four-year-old who I swear he could live on air. He's just like not that interested in food. He's more interested in doing things and having experiences. And so I'd love to talk a little bit about this like um, idea of my kid isn't hungry. So we sit down at the dinner table and my kid isn't hungry, how do I handle that? And what does that look like handling it in a respectful way? Okay. So um, it's tricky, right? When the child refuses meal again, it sets this panic button on. And But uh, what we really um, need to set up is um, this opportunity for them to refuel on a regular basis so that if they skip a meal, we know that there is another eating opportunity coming up in a couple of hours. That's why the, in the second aspect we covered about the what of feeding the kids, the second aspect of the division of responsibility is the when of feeding children. And that's all about the structure. So what I do when I, when I talk to a family like yours and they say, okay, my child is never hungry for a meal. The first thing we do, we troubleshoot the mealtime structure and we look at when meals and snacks are served. And we look not only at the gaps between meals and snacks. For a four-year-old, would probably two, three-hour gap would be appropriate. We also look at the times of the day when the kids are at their hungriest. And we try to maximize nutrition and calories at this time when they're the hungriest, especially those who are picky eaters. And for many kids, it's actually after school hours, three, four o'clock in the afternoon when they just won't eat everything around them. So um, when a kid is consistently not hungry for dinner, there may be another time during the day where he is hungry and where he needs those calories, where he can consume them. And for many kids that age, as I said, it's about 3 to 4 p.m. So I suggest serving a super snack. It's a snack with a lot of different options, with some protein, grains, I have pictures and I have a whole blog post on it. We'll need to link to that. Definitely. So that they eat. So they eat when they're hungry because dinner is often hit or miss with small kids, especially when they're picky. The day has been long. They've been eating a bunch of times. They're tired. They don't want anything. They just want to unwind and relax. And here we have this woo the whole balanced meal that we want them to try and eat. They're not going to perform that well in terms of eating at dinner time. It's the worst time of the day to expect much of them. So I know that it's the time of the day when we are more likely to see them and share the meal. But that's why I tell the parents to not worry. Just put the food on the table, eat something yourself. They have to sit down because it's family time and you set the mealtime structure, meal and snack structure. So they have to be there. There is really no option, but they don't have to eat. They can hang out, eat a couple of whatever spoons and be gone. But make sure that you maximize this other eating opportunity during the day when they are at their hungriest. And for many kids, this age is going to be in the afternoon. Some kids eat breakfast like champions. I definitely want to share pictures of that because you shared this really cool photo on your Facebook page the other day of like a snack you had set out for, I think it was yesterday that you set out for um, a bunch of kids that were coming over. And it's like, it's so simple. It's silly. You know, it's beautiful and it looks really nice, but it was like some packaged cheese and some fruit and some vegetables and a few like rice cakes and cookies. And it's really 
simple stuff, but I could see how kids could help themselves to it and feel out how hungry they are and maybe try something they wouldn't normally eat. Um, but you said something else that so resonated with me and it goes back to this, like it's bigger than just food thing, which is like, we, most of us listening know as a parent that you can expect very little of your children at the end of the day because they're tired and you're tired. And somehow that hasn't translated into giving them grace at dinner time. Absolutely. Oh my God. Our whole attitude in parenting and vocabulary changes the moment mealtime comes because before that it's all about sweetie and nice and, you know, gentle conversations. But then the dinner time and we're all like tiger moms and dads because again, it chips those parenting instincts in us. Oh my goodness, he's not going to eat. He's going to starve. He's not going to sleep. We have this, all this anxiety, panic, panic thoughts going in our heads. Plan a bedtime snack. Plan and set up. If your child regularly skips dinner, put a little bit on a plate and uh, serve it at the bedtime snack mm. in a couple of hours if there is this opportunity. So that it gives a parent a peace of mind. I'm sure that kids will be fine if they go to bed hungry. Yeah. Most of them I wouldn't even care. But for parents, it's important yeah. to have this peace of mind that they have this opportunity to refuel before bed. Or sometimes a glass of milk with maybe like an apple or something. So my son always says he's hungry at bedtime, which is frustrating because he didn't eat dinner half the time. So it would be okay for him to have an apple or a banana at bedtime, even though he didn't eat dinner. It's not that like, I hear some people say like, oh, if you didn't eat dinner, then no more food for the rest of the night. Okay. So um, it depends on a couple of things. First of all, how close is this snacking opportunity Mm. to dinner? We don't want it to look as a reward for not eating dinner. So because some kids may may not eat dinner in order to be hungry for this whatever snack, it's a highly desirable food. So we want it to be very matter of fact, scheduled and planned by you. So they don't go to the fridge and say, oh my God, I I want this. So go to the cupboard and pick what they want. No, the time comes. You tell them, here's a bedtime snack. Would you like to sit down and have some? And you put a plate in front of them and you put whatever it is that you decide on the plate and they Mm -hmm. eat or they don't. So this is what it looks like. Because if 15 minutes after dinner, they go straight to the cupboard and start rummaging through things, that's not acceptable. You haven't planned it. You haven't chosen, you haven't planned the menu or the timing. So they're taking on your responsibility and it will get worse from then on. That is such an important point. This idea of like, it has to be what you planned and you decided on. And I would encourage folks who are listening to consider like, is this something I should be planning and deciding on? And if so, maybe it's something that they add to their repertoire, but being really intentional about saying like, this is, this is my piece of the responsibility. Exactly. You see the division of responsibility about giving the parent and the child the roles they're truly capable of uh, executing. Child doesn't have nutritional knowledge. They don't have cooking skills. They don't have a credit card to go to a grocery store. That's why you do it. On the other hand, you have no way of estimating how hungry the child is at the moment, what he feels like eating, whether he's going through a growth spurt or he's going to go, going to have a stomach virus tomorrow and he just doesn't feel like eating. So he's the only one who knows how hungry he is and how much he wants to eat. So that's why it's their responsibility. It's very logical in a way. There's no way to do it differently. The moment we start overstepping each other territory, then issues start happening. 
Yes. Okay. So we're coming to the end of our time, which I'm so sad about because I have a million and one questions for you. But I have two things I want to hit on before we get to kind of wrap up and where people can learn more about you. So, um, I, and now I've forgotten one of them. So I'll just move on to uh, talk to me a little bit about dessert. So I have a treat I want to include in my child's diet, what is the appropriate way to include that when it comes to division of responsibility and just laying a healthy foundation? Okay. Very easy question, actually. Dessert is the only type of food that is served in limiting in limited amounts. So all the other foods are in the middle of the table, unlimited amounts. I mean, reasonably, you don't want to serve a you know, truckload of mashed potatoes, but limited amount, unlimited amounts. Desserts is just one serving per person. And it's something, again, that you plan, not something that kids just kind of go looking for after a meal. When you announce what you prepared, you can also say what you've planned for dessert. And you also can serve it alongside the rest of the meal. Because the serving is so little, it's not going to interfere with your child's eating unless your child is just not that hungry, which probably wouldn't have made any difference anyway if you served it at the end of the meal. The key is to keep the serving size very diff- very small. You don't have to serve dessert with the meal, but I recommend it for families where kids go like, oh my God, what's for dessert? What's for dessert? The moment they sit down to eat or they become like a little preoccupied with dessert things. So then yeah. I just put it out there. That's a dessert. Eat it, leave it now. Then, And my kids now, they just eat it at the end of the meal. It doesn't matter whether I serve it at the beginning or at the end. So it doesn't matter. But for some families, they need to go through this process of neutralizing it. And you don't have to serve dessert with each meal. It really, it's up to you as a parent. Your food beliefs, your food beliefs play a role here. Yes, totally. And I find myself, I've listened to all of your stuff and I tell myself like, okay, don't use dessert as a reward. But sometimes because you get this anxiety about where your kids are eating, it feels so like, I need to give this reward so that he'll just eat some stinking broccoli. (laughs) It's like letting go of that might help me to be like, okay, here's, we're each getting like a tiny piece of brownie and here it is with our meal and you can decide when to eat it. It doesn't matter because I'm trusting that you're going to eat as much as you need to eat and you have limited access to. Yeah. And of course, at first, kids always push the limits and experiment. The first couple of times, they may just eat this brownie, fill their time a little bit, and then just go on. And that's fine. As I said, skipping meals is okay. Plan a bedtime snack for that specific day and move on because they will learn soon enough that the dessert is not something they have to eat, eat something in order to get it, you know? So they will know that if it's here, it's here. If it's not here, it's not here. Whatever they eat, the mom hasn't planned for dessert today. So it doesn't matter. There's no surprise after. So I don't need to hold out just in case. That's that's really interesting. I've never thought about it that way too, which is like, oh, maybe I won't eat because there might be ice cream afterwards. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, they kind of know. And they're like, okay. And actually, interestingly enough, after they they are done with this dessert, they may actually look more carefully at what is on the table because once that is out of their way, they're kind of, what else is here, you know? Yes. (laughs) Our kids eat more. Oh my gosh. I am... I just love this. Thank you. I I remembered my other question, which is, okay, so my kid comes to the dinner table. He doesn't feel like eating. He might take a few bite of things. And then he says, I'm not hungry anymore. Can he leave? Or is it important that everyone sit at the dinner table while everyone's eating until completion? 
Okay, so I would look at what you've been doing before then and whether you're going through this transition to family meals, which can be hard for some families and they may just just need to go through this tricky period when they learn to sit down and eat because at the beginning it may be so novel to them that they will be just a little bit taken aback. But ultimately, we do not expect the kids to spend 40 minutes sitting here and, you know, watching us eat. 10-15 minutes is normally what is enough for most kids. And some kids are super slow eaters and some kids are just faster. 10-15 minutes is enough. So um, if they eat a few bites and then just leave and they're fine for the rest of the day, and then that's totally exactly what they need. They just got what they needed out of this meal. If they come back 15 minutes later after the dinner is put away, You can say, oh, sweetie, you know, I planned a bedtime snack in about an hour, an hour and a half. We can sit down and blah, blah, blah. Of course, there will be a tantrum and they might not like it. But as, you know, with setting any limits, whether it's crossing the road with their hand, holding their hand or something else, it's just another limit that we need to establish. They're not going to starve in this one hour. Everything will be okay. So we just, your job is to maintain the schedule. I love That's that. That's a okay. you stick to it. It will make sense. Okay. So we don't need to fight trying to get our kids to sit as long with us as we'd like to sit at the dinner table. About 10 to 15 minutes is enough, but it sounds to me like with so much of what you're saying, expectation setting and sticking to those expectations is the really important piece of the puzzle. And it's a process, as I said, it's just the beginning of the journey. And uh, you have, we have so many years to kind of practice that so we are lucky to have our kids with us for such a long time <laughs> so it will take some time I love that like we are we're laying the groundwork and if we think of it on a long-term perspective rather than just focusing on the here and now of this specific meal or this specific day and how they ate I think that will help to a lot of us parents to alleviate that anxiety that we feel in the moment exactly yes exactly keeping the long-term goal in mind instead of micromanaging Yes. So I know that there are like a million more questions I could ask you. And I think that there are going to be a lot more questions that our listeners have for you, but we have limited time. And also I know folks listening have limited time to listen in. So can you tell us a little bit more about where parents can find you and how they can learn more? Of course. So I'm, I have a blog, it's called Feeding Bites with Y. And uh, there you have two main parts, starting solids, and uh, picky eating. So I keep it very simple. If you're starting solids with your baby, go there. If you have a picky eater, go over there. You have a lot of articles to go through, to read. There's some videos as well. And you can learn a lot from the Facebook group that I might maintain with another dietitian, Adina Pearson. It's called uh, Feeding Bites, Real Families, Real Meals. As well as from my Facebook page, Feeding Bites on Facebook. Okay, so that's kind of a a lot of information. And there's many, many articles, many posts, and I encourage you to read through as much as you want, see what other parents are saying, ask questions, whether on my Facebook page, send me a direct message, look at what parents are saying in the Facebook group, and just really try to learn. 
if you're curious, interested in a more structured approach to all of that, kind of step by step by step by step so that you know what to, what to do at each specific moment, you can look into the online program that I'm launching at this time when we are recording this session. You can learn about it if you go to feedingbytes forward slash, oh, sorry, feedingbytes.com forward slash join. There you can read more about the online program and just um, consider whether it's the right choice for you. But if you're looking for all this information in there in a digestible video format with a lot of printouts and examples of free meals and recipes and meal plans and all of that just to make it super easy for you, I encourage you to look into it as well. I love that. And we'll provide links to all of this. I'm telling you, I looked at the course as we're recording this, it's about to launch. And I learned a lot even just reading through the outline. So I imagine that the content that you have in there for anyone who feels like the anxiety around feeding their kids is operating or is taking up a large part of their brain space, that this could be life-changing information for them. Thank you. I hope so. And we definitely have some wonderful testimonials from previous participants. So I'm so excited about it. And I'm so appreciative to you for being here today. All right. So let's wrap up. I'm just going to ask you a few either or questions and would love to hear your perspective. So salty or sweet? Salty. (laughs) Cook or clean? Oh, clean. Clean. I'm shocked by that answer. Okay. (laughs) This is full of surprises. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Uh, Yeah. Same. For sure. Oh, my God. (laughs) Every darn day. Beer or wine? Wine. Same. My husband is from Spain, please, of course, wine. (laughs) (laughs) And dine in or dine out? Oh, out, out. But we can't do that often. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? Isn't that the kicker? So, okay, I know it's supposed to be either or, but if you dine out, is it with your whole family or would you rather just dine out with your husband? Just with my husband sometimes. I don't remember last time we did it. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) I'm with you. I love dining out, but it's stressful with my kids. And I try to expose them to the dining out experience so that they can, like, learn those skills of being in a restaurant. But solo with my husband every single time. It's a treat, isn't it? It's a treat. (laughs) Such a treat. Well, you know, this was also a fantastic treat, Natalia. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on, for talking to us about turning picky eating around. And I know that that's the title of this, but I think maybe a better title would be like rethinking the way that you feed your family and how you view picky eating, which is way too long, but that's what I got out of it. I think it definitely gets the concept. Absolutely. I agree with you. I should consider that. (laughs) Well, thank you. I hope everyone listening will check out Natalia's various Facebook pages. I've gotten so much out of the Facebook group and the conversation happening there and her website. And I just thank you for being here, but also for all of the work that you're doing to help us parents feed our children better. Thank you for listening.